0: Welcome back to those of you who've been following with us and welcome to those of you who are newly following the Yale Neurology Podcast. I'm Kevin Wilson. I'm one of the PGY4 Neurology residents. And uh, with me is Jeff Dewey, one of our faculty members in neuromuscular medicine.
1: Hey, good to be back.
0: Today, we're going to be talking just about basics of EMG and nerve conduction study. So we'll run through kind of the basic terminology, we'll talk about some parameters that we use to make diagnostic decisions based on the data that we get. And hopefully it will be helpful to build a framework for interpreting these neurophysiologic studies. So off the top, I think it's good just to kind of define what we're talking about. When we talk about EMGs and nerve conduction studies, it's Two different studies in terms of what you're actually doing, but they run really well together. EMG, standing for electromyography, is the needle study portion. Nerve conduction studies are tests where we're running electric currents through nerves and directly interpreting the responses using uh, recording electrodes. Jeff, anything to add to that to kind of give a, a basic
1: primer? No, I think it's perfect. You know, and it, we often will say EMG, and what we really mean is EMG, nerve conduction study. So EMG is probably the term that is colloquially used to describe this entire process.
0: Exactly, and so it can it can be confusing when you're first learning, but it, you know it's good to keep in mind. Often we'll use EMG as shorthand, and it refers to kind of this set of two testing modalities. I think it'd be helpful, you know, Jeff, you're the more experienced of the two of us with this, to run through kind of the basics of how these tests are performed in terms of the equipment that we have available.
1: Yeah, so EMG is really an extension of the clinical exam. So what we're doing is we're studying the nerves and the muscles and we're trying to determine, you know, is there any dysfunction in one place or another? Uh, It can be helpful in a way that the clinical exam can't, in that we can localize a little bit more easily. We can tell a little bit more about pathophysiology in terms of demyelinating versus axonal disease, uh, and can give just generally more information, and also in a quantitative way, more so perhaps than the physical exam, which is to some degree qualitative and even subjective when it comes to the sensory exam. So The way we perform it is it's a pretty simple setup, and it's actually based on the same technology as an EEG. So it's a differential amplifier, which means that you need two electrodes, a recording electrode and a reference electrode. And the difference between those is what you're going to amplify. To eliminate background interference, you need a ground electrode. And then you need something to create the electrical current. And basically, with those tools, you can interrogate any nerve that's anatomically accessible in the body. So these are the tools for the nerve conduction study. For the EMG study, we actually are using the same technology, but it's set up in a little bit different way. So the EMG uses a needle, which is actually two needles separated by a layer of insulation in the the type of needles we use in our lab, which are called concentric needles. So you have an outer layer and an inner layer, which are the recording and reference layers separated by a layer of Teflon insulation and you have a ground electrode. In this case, you don't need a stimulator because the stimulation is voluntary activation of the muscle. Now, I just wanna say there are other types of needles that can be used. So for instance, the most popular other type is a monopolar needle, which is just one electrode, and you actually need a separate reference electrode that sticks to the surface of the skin. So figure out what type they're using in the lab that you go into, but the basics are always there. This is always some kind of differential amplifier set up with two electrodes in a ground, and then either exogenous stimulation, in the case of the nerve conduction study... Or patient-initiated stimulation in the case of the EMG.
0: Fantastic. So the basic principle, and then depending on you know where you're working, you may have different takes on that. Whether it's you know a monopolar needle or or, or what have you. And why don't we talk about some of the basic parameters that we're looking at? We'll we'll start with I think a, a nerve conduction studies, and what are we testing, and, and what do those different parameters help us determine about uh, conduction along? It?
1: Yeah. So if you look at any EMG machine, you know you have the things we just talked about. But these days, they're all connected to a computer, either a laptop or you know desktop or whatever. So you have a nice display with some version of an EMG software running. And the hardware and software will vary based on manufacturer, but you're going to get the same basic information out of them. So for any nerve conduction study, you're going to get a number of different parameters. One is the latency, which is how long it takes from stimulation to onset of your response potential. And then you can also calculate then a velocity if you know the distance between your stimulation and your recording site. Uh, And that often is calculated automatically once a distance is entered. You're gonna get an amplitude of response. You can measure the duration of the response. And then based on these basic parameters, you can look for a number of different things, which we can talk about in a little bit. Things like conduction block, temporal dispersion. You can look at late responses of the nerves. So really based on parameters of speed, latency and velocity, and parameters of signal strength or amplitude, you can determine a lot about the nerves themselves. Now the EMG is a little bit more complicated and you're actually seeing things in in real time with an EMG. So you're basically looking at a live screen of the muscle signal, the electrical signal in the muscle transformed into into a graphic interface. So there are really a few different components for each muscle that you're gonna record. The first is what you hear in the muscle at rest. So that's insertional activity of the needle any spontaneous activity of the muscle then you ask the patient to activate the muscle and you're looking at the uh, the morphology of the motor unit itself that you're recording so what does that unit look like and then how are they recruiting motor units throughout the muscle.
0: So going back to the the nerve conduction studies and and you know when we talk about latency and velocity and the distances you know we're, we're really just measuring those distances right over the patient's skin following the anatomical paths of those nerves. And Jeff can you talk a little bit about what we can interpret from latency and velocity and and what maybe we can interpret from amplitude or duration of these action potentials that we're looking at.
1: Yeah, and th- it's really nice because this ties into basic neurophysiology. So what makes our nerves so fast is our myelin and our our internodal conduction or saltatory conduction along nodes of Ranvier. So when we have things where the speed is abnormally slow or the latency is abnormally long, that's a good indicator that there's demyelination happening. Similarly, the axon is what carries the actual signal itself. And as you lose axons in a nerve bundle, you start to lose signal amplitude. So a loss of amplitude in a nerve signals an axonal process. And for the basics, that's actually probably the most important thing to remember is that speed is a measure of myelin integrity. Amplitude is a measure of axonal integrity.
0: Great. Is there anything, you know, when when we have an action potential, it's, you know, it has a duration during which it is present. Is there anything we can interpret from that?
1: Yes. So you can uh, interpret what's called temporal dispersion. So it, you know, it varies based on the nerve, but should be of sort of a known duration. If you start to have demyelination, that's segmental. So some parts of the nerve are demyelinated, others are not, you're gonna end up with longer and longer duration responses. And we call that temporal dispersion, meaning that uh, the signals are arriving in a more dispersed way over time from any given nerve. And so you get a widened response with a lower amplitude, but actually a similar area under the curve. So the area under the curve is another measure we can use to say how much signal is getting through, regardless of the shape of the response. Okay,
0: and that makes sense because you have, like you said, segmental demyelination. So slowed through that spot, which kind of causes the whole action potential to be almost spread out. Is that is that right?
1: Pretty much. Yep. So in in a good, healthy nerve, most of your signal should arrive at the same time. But as you start to pick off axons in a in a nerve bundle, that's where you get the dispersion comes from.
0: So there are some other kind of terms that get thrown around in EMG that can be a little bit confusing if you're not sure what you're talking about. Can can you explain conduction block for us?
1: Yeah. So conduction block is another measure of segmental demyelination. So if you picture a nerve, when you're checking a motor nerve conduction study, you stimulate in at least two places. And the reason you do that is so you can calculate the velocity between those two sites without the neuromuscular junction present in between. So between any two sites, your amplitude should be about the same. If you stimulate the median nerve at the wrist and at the elbow, you should get a similar amplitude from the abductor pollicis previs. If there's segmental demyelination between the elbow and the wrist, sometimes it's so severe that the signal actually drops out entirely. And we call that conduction block, meaning the conduction of those axons in the nerve bundle was blocked. And so what you actually see is a loss of amplitude between the site closest to the muscle and the site further away from the muscle and a loss of area under the curve. So this is no longer just temporal dispersion. This is actual loss of signal which is termed conduction block. And usually we say if you lose 50% or more of your signal, then you have partial conduction block. If you lose it entirely, you have total conduction block. It can be a little bit confusing because we're talking about amplitude, but we're really talking about myelin. So this is the one case where amplitude changes can signal Primarily a myelin problem, and you'll see this in things of like, with acquired demyelination, like Guillain-Barré syndrome, would be the prototypical example.
0: It sounds like there's a, a you know difference in severity, both conduction block and temporal dispersion indicate segmental demyelination, but it sounds like maybe there's a difference in the severity of the demyelination depending on which of those you see.
1: Perhaps, and you can see them both together as well. So uh, they're not mutually exclusive.
0: One other thing that often comes up that can be confusing uh, when we're first learning the terminology is is uh, late responses. Can you talk us through the uh, the F-wave?
1: Yeah, so the F-wave is a popular, what we call late response. And it really is, it's nice because it is a asynaptic signal. So what you do in, to record an F-wave is you do what you would do for a motor study. So you stimulate the nerve and record at its innervated muscle. But then you wait and you turn up your sensitivity. And what happens is, you know, when you stimulate a nerve at any point, you're actually sending signal in both directions. So you have an orthodromic or a physiologic direction, which is from the nerve down to the muscle. But you're also sending signal backwards up toward the nerve cell body and the axon hillock. And if you send enough signal, if you go supra maximally, in other words, so more signal than the nerve actually needs to activate the entire muscle, you can actually trigger an action potential in some of the nerves or the nerve cell bodies that are innervated through that axon bundle. So if I stimulate at the wrist, I'll get an immediate response called the M response at the abductor pollicis brevis. And then if I wait around 20 to 30 milliseconds, I'll get a much smaller response because about 10% of those axons actually got re-stimulated to send an action potential back down the nerve. So the nice thing is it gives us a look at the entire course of the nerve because we're sending a signal from somewhere very distal all the way up to the cell body and then waiting for it to come all the way back down to the muscle. So it's very useful in subtle cases of demyelination because if you see a prolonged F response, you know that somewhere along the course of the nerve, it's demyelinated. Now the problem is you don't know where, but it's somewhere in the course of the nerve. And if you have enough data and good clinical information, you can surmise what the significance of that response is.
0: So in that sense, it's probably a sensitive test for demyelination anywhere along, along that nerve for the most Correct,
1: part. Correct, but not specific yeah. to any one place. Exactly.
0: And uh, you know, again, just to emphasize, you know, when, you, when you look at this test, you're going to see a large deflection at the beginning, like Jeff said, which is going to be your M wave, which is the primary act- action of that muscle. And then you're looking for that late response. That's why we, we ca- talk about these as late responses. That is this sort of deflection coming back down. And we usually do 10 of these. Is that right?
1: Yeah. Some, some people will do five, some people will do 10. The reason you do a number of them is, is you want to count the fastest one you can get. So a different 10% of your axons is going to fire each time and you want the fastest one you can get. Also, you're looking for, are they consistent? In some cases of pathology, you'll have excess dropout of F waves and that can also help you.
0: Another late response that we talk about frequently is uh, the H reflex. Can you talk us through that?
1: Yeah, so the ACE reflex is done in a very specific way. F-responses can be done in a number of different nerves. The H reflex is really done in primarily one place, and it's the electrophysiologic equivalent of the Achilles reflex. So what we're doing is we're submaximally stimulating the sciatic nerve, uh, and usually the tibial branch of the sciatic nerve in the back of the leg. That signal, again, goes in both directions, but it travels orthodromically up the leg into the spine via an interneuron and then onto the motor motor cell bodies, which travel back down and innervate the gastrocnemius. So what you get is you stimulate the, the nerve, and you're actually stimulating the nerves that innervate the, the muscle spindle, goes all the way up and triggers essentially a reflex response in the gastroc contracts. So it's exactly the same thing that happens when you tap on the Achilles tendon in the gastroc contracts, but we're doing it with electricity in this case. So it's another way of looking at The length of nerves. But in this case, you get a sensory nerve and a motor nerve, as opposed to the F response, which is a pure motor response.
0: Great. So it's it's essentially an electrophysiologic version of that uh, ankle jerk reflex that we can test and actually be able to interrogate both a sensory and motor branch. Absolutely. And one thing I just wanted to briefly go through just as a point of terminology, when we talk about orthodromic versus antidromic, we're talking orthodromic are tests that we do in the sort of native direction of a nerve. Because remember, when we stimulate with electricity, the nerve doesn't care which direction it goes. So anytime you stimulate with electricity, you're going to send electrical stimulation in both directions in the nerve. But of course, natively, our nerves are set up to carry sensory information from the periphery back towards the spinal cord and then eventually up and carry motor information sort of from the spinal cord out into the various effector muscles. So when we talk about orthodromic, we're going in that native direction. So for motor nerves, it would be out towards the muscles. And for sensory nerves, it would be back towards the spinal cord, and then the other sensory processing machinery. And antidromic would be going against those native pathways. So for motor nerves, it would be conducting back from the muscle towards the spinal cord, and for sensory nerve processing, back out towards the periphery.
1: Couldn't have put it better myself.
0: Let's, let's uh, shift gears a little bit and talk about EMG and this needle studies, to be clear. This can be a little bit more tricky and there's a little bit more, I think, subjectivity. You mentioned the four components. Why don't we start with insertional activity and talk through sort of what we're looking for and what those things might mean?
1: Yeah. So every muscle makes a little bit of noise when you stick a needle into it. You're basically physically deforming the muscle fibers and some of them fire because of that. So when you stick a needle in a muscle, you're going to hear a very, very brief crackle. And it's actually useful for the emg because that's how you know that you've passed through all the subcutaneous tissue and connective tissue and are actually in a muscle fiber. But that should abate very quickly, within 1 to 200 milliseconds. And then the muscle should be silent at rest. What you can hear in muscle that's that has pathology, particularly in denervated muscle or irritated muscle from inflammation... Is prolonged insertional activity. So you stick the needle in, you hear that crackle, but either it doesn't quite stop fast enough, or you hear other abnormal discharges, simply because you mechanically deform the muscle. That indicates pathology. So, sort of the cutoff we have is about two to three hundred milliseconds. Anything beyond that point suggests increased insertional activity. Sometimes you hear less because there's actually less muscle fiber. And that can be seen in things like diseases where the muscle is replaced with connective tissue, for instance, muscular dystrophies or other uh, non-neurogenic atrophies of the muscle.
0: Okay, great. So there's an expected, you know, there's an expected sort of pop when we get into the muscle. And if it's completely silent, that wouldn't be normal either. But we're, we're also looking for sort of prolonged uh, insertional activity past what we would expect from just that initial pop. Talk us through what we expect to hear in the muscle at rest, because we don't have the patient activate right away. We want to observe and listen to the muscle at rest first.
1: Yeah, so once you've gotten past that insertional activity, normal muscle, if it's truly relaxed, should be quiet, meaning you're not hearing any discharges. Now, it's, it's sometimes hard for the patient to relax, so you can hear occasional voluntary motor unit discharges, but you shouldn't be hearing anything else. Uh, And when you do, we call it spontaneous activity. So typically spontaneous activity is abnormal and it can come in many different forms. Terms you'll see on exams and in EMG tables on standardized tests would be things like positive sharp waves or fibrillations. Those kind of go together and those are really signs of muscle fiber denervation. So they're generated by the muscle fiber. They occur at relatively regular, actually very regular rates. And they're basically spontaneous discharges of muscle fibers themselves. So whenever you see those on an EMG table, that should tell you that it, either the muscle fiber has been denervated or the muscle fiber is inflamed, because we can also see these in cases of inflammatory myositis. Other things you might see very commonly would be fasciculations. So just like we can see fasciculations visually on the neurologic exam, you can see fasciculations electrographically on the uh, EMG. And basically, they they're described as sort of Popcorn in a microwave—they're irregular, they're very slow, and they're what they are are motor units discharging spontaneously due to irritation somewhere along the course of the motor unit. And there's a lot of debate as to where the fasciculation actually comes from. But they're they're larger and they're more irregular than fibrillations and positive sharp waves. Both of these or all three of these can be seen in neurogenic processes. Fibrillations and positive sharp waves can also be seen in myositis or inflammatory myopathies. More complex discharges that we can see but are, are worth knowing about would be complex repetitive discharges. So these are essentially reentrant loops of m- multiple fibers triggering one another. And they sound, they're described as the humming of a machine. They're very, very regular, they're very complex, hence the name, complex repetitive discharges. And those again indicate chronic denervation of a muscle fiber or a group of muscle fibers actually. And then probably the other one that's worth knowing, because it has a disease named after it, would be myotonic discharges. And these are most commonly seen in myotonic dystrophy, but can really be seen in many disorders of muscle, uh, either hyperactivity or relaxation, or even in some cases in denervated muscle. And those are described as a dive bomber. So they they sort of classically go, and then they sort of die out. Um, But those, uh, for testing purposes, would be generally indicative of myotonic processes. That's very helpful.
0: Now getting into the the motor unit itself. So now that we've, you know, we've gone in, we've listened for our insertional activity. We've moved the needle around into muscle at rest and sort of listened in several different regions and gotten a sense of, you know, the spontaneous activity in the muscle. Now we're starting the part where we're having the patient actually activate the muscle that we're testing. What sorts of things do we look for in, uh, once we've once, once we've reached that point?
1: When you have a patient do this, you want to have them activate the muscle gradually. So, as as sort of subtly as possible at first, and then you're providing resistance with one hand while you're holding the needle still with the other, you eventually have them activate to as full of strength as you can recruit. Now, sometimes this is pain limited. Sometimes the muscle is pathologically weak, but the best effort you can possibly get. And what you're really looking for are a few things. But first of all, what's the morphology of the motor unit? And so we can look at things like what is the amplitude? Usually this is measured from peak to peak. uh, And you want to see you know, somewhere in the order of three to four millivolts. Increased amplitude can happen when denervation and re has occurred. So if you think about what happens, a muscle fiber is denervated, and then it gets picked up by another motor unit. So all of a sudden, that motor unit has more fibers in it than it used to, especially if it picks up multiple orphan fibers. And so all of a sudden, the amplitude becomes larger because you're discharging more fibers with each pulse of the motor unit. In myopathic processes, because the fibers are dying, you can actually see decreased motor unit amplitudes because it's not a matter of losing innervation to the fibers, it's a matter of losing fibers themselves. So increased amplitude, think neurogenic process with re-innervation. Decreased amplitude, think myopathic process. And these are general heuristics. There are always exceptions to these rules. If you really want to get technical, you can look at sort of the slope or the rise time of the motor unit, and that can give you some idea of how close... Your needle is to the motor unit that you're listening to. One of the, one of the drawbacks of, of needle EMG is you can get a very distant signal, which is relatively not that far away. We're talking on the order of millimeters, but can seem very low amplitude, but it's actually just because your needle is not very close to the motor unit itself. So you want to you be measuring motor units that you're confident your needle is close to, and this nice sharp upslope or rise time, short rise time can help you be sure of that. Less important for testing purposes, but just worth noting when you're in the EMG lab and observing EMGs being done. So we've talked about amplitude, we've talked about sort of slope. One other measure you can look at is the duration. Normally you don't want to see it last longer than 10-15 milliseconds. This indicates how organized or how synchronous the motor unit is at firing. Similar to what we talked about earlier with temporal dispersion, a native motor unit is going to fire pretty synchronously, meaning all of the individual fibers will fire at the same time. And when you look at the combined motor unit, it's a fairly narrow process. The more disorganized it becomes, the longer the duration becomes. And again, the most common way this happens is by motor units picking up orphaned muscle fibers that were not part of their native structure. So they're innervated by not as robust of nerve fibers. The organization isn't quite as compact. And so you start to see these longer duration fibers with re Similarly, because in a myopathic process you have fewer fibers, your duration gets shorter. So again, shorter duration indicates myopathic, longer duration indicates neurogenic or neuropathic with re And then lastly, you sort of want to look at how many phases does the motor unit have? A typical motor unit is usually triphasic. When we talk about a phase, we're really talking about how many times did the, the motor unit cross baseline? Uh, and so, you know, if it crosses baseline three times from its starting point, then it is a triphasic. Well, I guess it's getting a little tricky to explain without a picture, but you yeah. basically want to want to look at it and count how many, how many deflections does it have from baseline? So a normal motor unit should be triphasic at most quadriphasic. So have four phases. Occasionally you can have a rare motor unit with more. Sometimes this is due to chronic reinnervation from an injury, et cetera but you shouldn't have many motor units with many numbers of phases. However, as motor units get complex in re again, you're going to add more phases, which is part of adding duration to your motor unit. So a polyphasic or highly phasic motor unit indicates denervation with re once again. So we're starting to see a pattern here. Denervation and reinnervation cause large amplitude, longer duration, polyphasic motor units, myopathic, Processes cause lower amplitude, shorter duration, and often possephasic motor units because you're losing muscle fibers. The last thing you kind of want to look at, and this is more of a gestalt, is what is the stability of your motor units over time. So you you know this is why early that early gentle recruitment is important because you can see just a few motor units and make sure that they're stable and not changing over time. Changes in amplitude or number of phases or other things indicate. Either disorders of neuromuscular junction where some of your fibers are dropping out, or an immature, newly reinnervated motor unit that's a little bit complex and is not quite firing appropriately.
0: That's great. That's really helpful. I think having these sort of heuristics, even if they're not perfect, is really helpful, you know, when we're getting used to interpreting these and can kind of help help you make some quick diagnostic inferences based on
1: There is a cat in our podcast.
0: So there's a, a cat, a cat just made uh, her first appearance on the podcast. If you heard a squeak, that was Luna. But it's good to have these heuristics. It really does help. And you can kind of apply cl- critical thinking and sort of clinical context to decide, you know, how far you're going to let it push you in one direction or another. But but having these basic understandings of, of what you're seeing in the needle EMG can be very, very helpful diagnostically. One of the last things that I know can be really confusing for residents is when we talk about recruitment patterns and what those mean.
1: Yeah. So recruitment is, is the last judgment of sort of an EMG. And that's also done during voluntary activation. And what you're really looking at is how many motor units is the patient activating? And is that appropriate for the amount of force that they're producing? So really, there's only two ways that you can make contraction of a muscle stronger. You can either recruit more motor units, or you can increase the frequency at which the motor units you have are firing. So what we're looking at with recruitment is basically that. How many units are we seeing? and how fast is any individual unit firing relative to the others. So when you first start to recruit a muscle, ideally you wanna be able to get one or two units in your recording field. And you wanna see those units increase up to about 10 hertz, maybe 15 hertz, before you start to increase the number of motor units that are present. So as the patient gradually increases resistance, you're gonna see rates go up, but at a certain point you'll start to see motor units added and no unit should be firing faster than about 15 hertz as sort of a general rule of thumb. In neuropathic processes, we have fewer motor units available. So the only way to make the muscle stronger is to increase the firing rate. So what you often see in a neuropathic process is decreased recruitment, fewer overall units, and the units that you have are firing faster. In a myopathic process, your units are not as strong, but you have all the units that you need. So instead of firing faster, which you may also do, you're going to recruit more units sooner. We call that early recruitment. So you have increased recruitment in a myopathic process because you need more units to make the same amount of strength. Now, if you're really weak, you're also going to see those units fire faster. And in very bad myopathies, you see what sounds like maximal recruitment with minimal effort being produced. But these general heuristics, again, are are your friends. So neuropathic, increased firing rate, decreased recruitment, myopathic, at least increased recruitment, possibly increased firing rate. That's really helpful. Again,
0: you know, I think there's there's obviously a lot more uh, you can get in the weeds in terms of the, the technicalities and the things that we look for in uh, EMG and nerve conduction studies. But I think that this is a really good start in terms of the basics of, you know, both how we do the testing. And then what sorts of parameters we're looking for and some basic heuristics of what they mean that can be really helpful, both for test taking and practically in the electrophysiology lab. Jeff, anything to add, any last pieces of wisdom for us?
1: No, I mean, I I think practically speaking, and just as, as neurologists going into practice, again, remember that the EMG, the nerve conduction study, is really an extension of the physical exam. It's the most useful when you have a hypothesis you're trying to test, as opposed to sort of a shotgun test where... You just throw an EMG at somebody and, and see what comes out. So really use the EMG as a tool to confirm your hypotheses and give you a little bit more information as to what might be going on in a way that will change your management. And that's where you're going to get the most valuable information out from the EMG. And the electromyographer will appreciate you more when you give them a very specific question. So that's the best way to use this tool, but it is a really powerful tool at your disposal.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I'll definitely echo that as with, you know, any test that we order, passing along the most clinical context you can to your EMG or will definitely help them give you the best study.
1: Absolutely. Well, this has been great. Thank you. I hope this uh, helps some people. Maybe in the future we can play some abnormal sounds too and go through what some of these discharges we've been talking about sound like.
0: Absolutely. That would be great. All right. Thanks everyone. We'll see you next time.